Well, good morning. If you turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 13, we're going to be taking a look at that passage today and fasten your seatbelts. There's a lot to cover today. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, there's some Bibles on the back table to uh, your right when you go out. Feel free to grab one. We'd love for you to have one. Uh, It's our gift to you. It's Mark chapter 13. We'll be looking at the whole chapter today. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to his councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on their housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven." From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. 
And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I've been to a couple of conferences down in Atlanta at the Georgia Dome, and when I went to uh, the Georgia Dome, I was amazed at how big it was and how nice it was. I haven't been to many NFL stadiums, but compared to our stadium here, it was very, very nice. And uh, it has a lot of history there. There were Part of the Olympics were uh, played there, the 1996 Olympics. There's been two Super Bowls that have played there, uh, including the one that the Bills were in in 1994. Uh, the Chick-fil-A Bowl has been held there a number of times. So it has a lot of history. And each time I would uh, see this stadium, see a game on TV played in this stadium, I would kind of think back and uh, with kind of fond memories of the conference and think about that structure and how big and how massive it was. But last year, I was surprised to learn that that enormous, huge, beautiful structure that I thought was so nice apparently wasn't good enough. And they were going to blow the whole thing up. And they strapped dynamite throughout the place. And in 15 seconds, that whole structure was basically completely gone. 15 seconds, this big structure comes down. It's kind of similar to the disciples who see these ginormous buildings. See this beautiful temple, these giant stones. And Jesus says, it's all going to come crashing down. Now, the disciples comes and tells Jesus, Teacher, what wonderful stones, what beautiful, uh, what beautiful stones, what a wonderful building. And whoever this disciple was, he wasn't exaggerating the greatness of this building. This was a massive structure. Herod had been building the temple structure for 50 years. It was 325 meters long, a wide 500 meters long with a circumference about a mile it was a 35-acre structure that you could fit about 12 football fields within, within the structure. And the stones that were used to make this building were also huge. There were some stones that were up to 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, that weighed over a million pounds. And so it would have been an incredible sight to see. Even people who go today to see the ruins are amazed at how big this structure was. But you can imagine the surprise that the disciples had when Jesus said, there will not be left one here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They had to be thinking to themselves, these stones, they're a million pounds, Jesus. This is our temple. This is the place where we worship. Herod's been working on this for 50 years. And you're saying this is just going to be destroyed. This passage that we're looking at today is a difficult passage. One commentator I read said it's one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the Bible. And so as we go through this passage, you may or may not agree with every last detail of how I interpret this passage. But that's okay. Look at the scriptures. You can form your own opinions based on the scriptures. But when we get to the end, when we get to the point of application, I think it's something we can all agree upon. So... Peter, James, John, and Andrew, after Jesus leaves the temple, come to him and say, What is the sign, and when will these things take place? When will these things be, and what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? Now, the reason this passage is difficult to interpret and understand is because some of the things that Jesus talks about had to have happened in the, in the time frame of the disciples. It had to have happened back then, and some of it had to happen in the future. For example, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. A generation was about 40 years. 
So some of it, some of this stuff or the fulfillment of these things had to have taken place back in the days of Jesus and his disciples. But there's other things that clearly couldn't have happened back in that day. For example, the sun and the, and the moon turning to darkness, the stars falling from the sky, the foundation being shaken, Jesus returning and gathering his elect. These things couldn't have happened. They haven't happened yet. So how do we make sense of these things where it seems like some of the things had to have happened in that time frame and some of the things had to have happened in the future and haven't even happened yet, even in our day? First, I think we need to remember what the disciples are asking. They're asking, when is the temple going to be destroyed and what sign do we have that it's about to happen? And I'm just going to suggest to you that Jesus here is acting as an Old Testament prophet and is going to prophesy in a similar way that the prophets prophesy. And often in the Old Testament, when uh, prophets would prophesy, there was a double meaning to what they were saying, a double fulfillment. That when they would predict something is happening, it would happen physically where they were, but it also pointed to a future reality. I think that's what's happening here. So think of it this way. I, Imagine that I could tell the future, and I knew uh, everyone who would win the Super Bowl for the next 20 years. And imagine I went to the next Bills preseason game, and I gathered a group of people around me, and I said, tell you what, this, or, or, the Bills are going to win the Super Bowl. First of all, they'd look at me like I was crazy. But if they believed me, they would assume and think, okay, the, the Bills are going to win this year. Maybe that's true. Maybe I know that that's true. They're going to win this year. But maybe they're also going to win four years from now and 15 years from now. And I just say the Bills are going to win the Super Bowl. And yes, I mean this year, but I also mean five years from now, 15 years from now. And so there's, in a sense, a double fulfillment. And I think that's what's happening here with Jesus and the things that he's talking about. So... What exactly is Jesus predicting here? First, he predicts that many deceivers will come and, and claiming that they're the Savior. He predicts that there'll be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. And these things started to happen even in the time frame of the disciples. The book of Acts describes the start of persecution of the early church. We see that there were a number of famines during the reign of Claudius from 45 to 47 A.D. There, were, there was an earthquake in 33 AD when Jesus died. Another earthquake occurred in 62 AD that destroyed a great part of the city of Pompeii. And so these things were happening even during the time frame of the disciples. And what's interesting is there's an apocryphal work, and that apocryphal means a book that's not accepted as scripture, kind of like a history book, um, from 4 Ezra. And in that book, it says that earthquakes, tumults of people, intrigues of nations, the wavering of leaders and the confusion of princes are signs that the end is coming. But here Jesus says the complete opposite. He says that there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be famines, but that doesn't mean that the end is here yet. That's just the beginning of the birth pain, the beginning of the end. And while these things happen during the time frame of the disciples and in their generation, there are also things that have happened in every generation. In every generation, there have been wars and rumors of wars. There's been famines, earthquakes. Every generation, and they may have increased in frequency, but they've always been there. Because we live in a fallen world. So that's the first thing. He says, these are not 
indications that the end is, the, is here. But then he gets a little bit more specific and he talks about this abomination of desolation. And this abomination of desolation comes from the book of Daniel. And it's interesting that there's a little parenthesis in your Bible in the ESV. It says, let the reader understand. Now that's not something that Jesus spoke because Jesus wasn't writing. He was speaking. It's probably something that Mark introduced. And so he says that probably to indicate, pay attention. That this, there's more to this than meets the eye. And this abomination of desolation came from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel prophesied that there would be an abomination of desolation. And what's interesting is the Jews believed that this prophecy was fulfilled in the 2nd century B.C. By a, by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Greek and he was trying to maintain power. And what he did was he came into Jerusalem and told the Jews that they couldn't practice any of their religious rituals anymore. And he went into the temple and he put in the place of the the altar of God an altar to Zeus. And he commanded that everybody worship Zeus. Then he took a pig, which was an unclean, uh, kind of an abomination to the Jews. And he took a pig and he sacrificed it on the altar. Then when the Jewish people resisted, he murdered hundreds, thousands of those people. And so many Jews believed that this was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel of the abomination of desolation. And in a sense, I think they were right. But in Jesus' mind, the prophecy was not complete. It didn't end there. And he speaks of an abomination of desolation coming to stand where we ought not to stand. Now, the next fulfillment of that, I believe, happens in, four, in 70 AD, about 40 years later, one generation later, when Titus comes into Jerusalem and destroys the entire city of Jerusalem. And what he does is he comes and he takes the Roman signal, which had a symbol of the gods that they worshipped, and he takes that signal and he places that where the temple and where Jerusalem once was. And so he takes that symbol of a false god and he places it where the temple once stood. The story in Josephus describes this terrible event that occurred in AD 70 and how this, this city was completely destroyed. He said, as legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impetuity. Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot and smoky ruins of the colonnades and died as miserably as the defeated. As they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands and urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The partisans were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Round the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered at the bottom. Slithered to the bottom. Elsewhere, he says, Now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury... For they would not have spared any had there remained any other work to be done. So that sounds a lot like what happens here in regards to the abomination of desolation. There's a great destruction, a great slaughter of God's people in Jerusalem, AD 70. Yet we know that can't be the only fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Because it says after this, 
after the tribulation, and in Luke, I believe it says immediately after, then the stars will fall from the sky, the sun and moon will be dark, the foundations will be shaken, and Jesus will return. So this can't be the ultimate fulfillment. So the abomination of desolation is pictured in this destruction of Jerusalem, but it also will be fulfilled in the end of time when a man described in 2 Thessalonians 2 as the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And when he's revealed, he will unleash his fury and take the place of God and do many wonders and, and attack God's people. After that great tribulation, then the sun and moon will be dark and the stars will fall from the sky and Jesus will be returned, will return. And so Jesus' prediction here is fulfilled in 70 AD partially, but it's ultimately fulfilled in the end of time when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is revealed against God's people and he returns. So if that's correct... If I'm correct in this interpretation that Jesus' fulfillment uh, already happened but is not yet fully consummated, if that's true, then why would Jesus talk like this? I mean, if I was, as I was studying this passage, I was scratching my head, and at first I was kind of getting upset because I'm thinking to myself, why would God speak like this? Like, why wouldn't he just make it clear? Why wouldn't he just say, okay, in AD 70, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed? In 2000-whatever, there's going to be this great tribulation. The land of lawlessness is going to be revealed. And then I'm going to return. Why wouldn't he just spell it out clearly so that there'd be no question? But when you think about it further, first of all, God's like an author. You know, an author writes a novel, and they could just write down bullet points of what happened. Person is in trouble. Person falls in love. Person beats bad guy. Everything works out, the end. I mean, you could describe what happens in a novel in about three sentences. But the author weaves a story. He wields suspense inside of the story in a beautiful way. And so I think that's what the first reason is. But more importantly, I don't think that Jesus wants us to know. I don't think he wants us to know the intimate details of what's going to happen. And the reason is because when we start setting dates for the end time, things start to get a little bit weird. Now there's uh, something to be said about looking for the signs. And Jesus talks about the signs that the end is coming. But when we start getting to the point where we're picking a date and, you know, we get charts out and we'll say, okay, this happened in 1947 and Russia had a meeting with, with this person and Trump did this. And we get all these things together and we're trying to figure out the intimate details of exactly when Jesus is going to return. Things start to get weird. I mean, there's been numerous people who have predicted when Jesus was going to come back. In the 1500s, uh, the reformer Luther wrote to a friend, I'm convinced the last day is at the door. Uh, 20 years later... He said, it is the last hour. John Wesley predicted that Jesus would return in 1836. Isaac Newton predicted he would return in the year 2000. A man named Jack Van Impey has apparently made many failed predictions, and each time he was wrong, he changed the date. His last prediction was 2012, and finally he's given up. But things start to get weird when we try to set a date for when Jesus is going to come back. And you can go online and find... You know, kind of weird stuff like where you 
these so-called ministries that have freeze-dried food so you can prepare for the apocalypse and you can you know, collect water so that in the event of the apocalypse you'll be prepared. And I think behind that fascination to know the dates, know exactly when Jesus is going to return, is that if we know the date, then when we get close, we can prepare ourselves. My parents went on vacation when I was, I don't know, maybe 16 or 17, 18. Um, And they went on vacation, and I knew when they were going to return. And the whole time that they were gone, I just trashed the house. There was wrappers and food and stuff everywhere. But when I knew they were going to come back, and they actually came back a little bit early, but I knew they were coming back, I went through the house and just took everything, threw it out, throwing, thing in, in, throw, throwing everything in the drawers. And when they came back in, it was spotless in there. In a similar way, I think we want to know when exactly Jesus was going to come back. Because then when we get close, we can straighten up everything so that we're not ashamed. It's kind of like a parable told by a man named Doug Mendenhall. He said, Jesus called the other day. To say he was passing through and wondered if he could spend a day or two with us. I said, sure, love to see you. When will you hit town? I mean, it's Jesus, you know, and it's not every day you get a chance to visit with him. It's not like it's your in-laws and you have to stop and decide whether the advantages outweigh having to move to the sleeper sofa. That's when Jesus told me he was actually at a convenience store out by the interstate. I must have gotten that Bambi in the headlights look because my wife hissed, what is it? What's wrong? Who is that? So I covered the receiver and told her Jesus was going to arrive in eight minutes. And she ran out of the room and started giving guidance to the kids. In that effective way that marine drill instructors give guidance to recruits. My mind was racing with what needed to be done in the next eight, no seven minutes. So Jesus wouldn't think we were reprobate loser slobs. I turned off the TV in the den, which was blaring some weird scary movie I'd been half watching. But I could still hear screams from our bedroom, so I turned off the reality show it was turned to. Plus, I turned off the kids' set out on the sun porch because I didn't want to have to explain John and, John and Kate plus eight to Jesus either, six minutes from now. My wife had already thinned out the magazines that had been accumulating on the coffee table. She put Christianity Today on top for a good impression, five minutes to go. I looked out the front window, but the yard actually looked great thanks to my long, hard work, so I let it go. What could I improve in four minutes anyway? I did notice the mail had come, so I ran out to grab it. Mostly it was Netflix envelopes and a bunch of catalogs tied into recent purchases, so I stuffed it back in the box. Jesus didn't need to get the wrong idea three minutes from now. I ran back in and picked a up a bunch of shoes left by the door, tried to stuff them in the front closet, but it was overflowing with heavy coats and work coats and snow coats and pretty coats and raincoats and extra coats. We live in the South. Why do we buy so many coats? I squeezed the shoes in with two minutes to go. I plumped up sofa pillows. My wife tossed dishes into the sink. I scolded the kids and she shooed the dog. With one minute left, I realized something important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is not an eight-minute job. And then the doorbell rang. If we know the date, we feel like we can get prepared. We can make sure we have our lives straightened out. We can get rid of that habit that we've been holding on to that we haven't dealt with. We can make sure that we're not ashamed. 
But the most amazing thing in this passage that I see is that the passage tells us, Jesus says, that he doesn't know when he's going to return. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, one with God, who existed from all eternity past, who created the world, he doesn't know when he's going to return. Why? Why doesn't he know? I mean, if he wanted to know, he could ask the Father. I'm sure the Father would tell him. I mean, he's God. He has all authority and power. So why doesn't he know? I think the reason that he doesn't know is that he he doesn't need to know. He doesn't need to know. He trusts the Father. He knows what the Father is doing. And get this, he's ready. As soon as the Father speaks the word, he is ready to go into action and do what the Father calls him to do. So he doesn't have to know when exactly that date is going to be. He trusts the Father and he's ready to act when the Father says. In this passage, Jesus concludes by telling us that we need to be ready. He tells in in the final passage, he says, stay awake three times. He says, be ready, stay awake. To be ready now. The question that I have for us to consider today is, are we ready to meet Jesus now? Not this afternoon, not tomorrow, not next week, not a few months from now, not a few years from now. Are we ready to meet Jesus now? The most important question is not when Jesus will come. But will we be ready to meet him when he does? It's not when he's going to come. It's if, are we going to be ready when he does? Because one day the foundation is going to crumble. One day the things that we put our hope in, just like the disciples put their hope in the temple and that great structure, one one day those things are going to fall. When that happens, are we going to be ready to meet Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you have a plan even when we don't see it. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to know all of the details of exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. But you've given us enough to know that we can trust you. That you're faithful. That you'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be ready to meet you. That we wouldn't put it off as if it's going to happen some distant time in the future. But as we live our lives, we would be ready to meet you today. That we would anticipate and look forward to your appearing. That we would take away anything in our life that we might be ashamed of. Anything that we've been holding on to, that we've been failing to deal with. And we'd be able to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly as we look forward and long for his appearing. Lord, we look forward to your appearing. We look forward to the time when you come and wipe away every tear from your eyes, from our eyes. Lord, we pray that you would come quickly to your church to bring us to be where you are. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for all that you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray, amen.